Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello and welcome to episode 115 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today's story is, I think, pretty hard to comprehend. Due to the nature of the crime, I felt it was necessary to include a lot more detail about the crime than I normally do. And I think it's going to be quite a tough listen, so I just wanted to warn you before we start. But before we begin, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, and especially this week's new members of this special club, that's Holly Clothier and Bob X. Thank you so much for your support, which is much appreciated. So let's briefly set some context to May 2012. Top of the UK music charts at this time was Talisa with Young, keeping Carly Rae Jepsen from the top spot. At number one in the US was Gotye featuring Kimbra with somebody that I used to know. Memo to self, check pronunciation before recording. Top of the Australian album charts at the time was Up All Night by One Direction. Not sure about Up All Night. I'm going large nowadays if I manage to stay up to the end of question time. In the news this month, a pastel version of one of my favourite pieces of work, The Scream, by Norwegian painter Edvard Munch, sold at auction for $120 million. 13 people were killed and 22 people injured after a bus fell 80 metres off a cliff in Albania. A number of nations, including Germany, Turkey and Canada, expelled Syrian diplomats following the Hula massacre, where over 115 people were massacred, including women and children, by the Syrian army. And in the 57th Eurovision Song Contest, Loreen for Sweden won singing Euphoria in Baku. I know you were watching. In sport, as London prepared to host the Olympics, Manchester City bought the Premier League for the first time, and Chelsea won the Champions League beaten by a Munich on penalties in Munich. Today's story is from Reading, a town of about 320,000 people, 40 miles west of London. Ricky Gervais is from Reading, and Jane Austen attended Reading Ladies Boarding School from 1784 to 1786. Grandfather of six, 67-year-old Desmond Goddard, was an ex-Royal Gloucester, Berkshire and Wiltshire Regiment soldier. On the morning of the 7th of May 2012, he was on his way to his cleaning job at Asda when he walked past Prospect Park in Reading, as he had done so many times before. But this wasn't a normal day. He came across a clearly terrified and distraught teenage girl, covered in blood, who staggered towards him asking for help. Almost unable to believe quite what he was seeing, Desmond quickly called the police. In a harrowing 20-minute call to a 999 operator, Desmond explained that he'd found a young woman who'd been shot, crying that her friend had been stabbed in the park. The girl said there were around five attackers and then revealed that she'd also been raped. Learning that a firearm was involved, the operator tried to get more information about what had happened. 
The operator explains that because a gun had been mentioned, the area is being searched with an ambulance waiting nearby. And almost 16 minutes into the call, Desmond learns that her other friend is only 16, to which he said, Her friend's 16. I'll please get them out now because I'm starting to lose it a little bit myself. Then 20 minutes after the call began, Desmond finally saw a police car and hung up. The young woman that Desmond was speaking with was 18 years old at the time and wasn't named for her own protection. So let's call her Jane for the purposes of today's story. The friend she spoke about was 16-year-old Mary Ann Lennigan. Jane and Mary Ann were friends. They had been since Mary Ann had approached Jane at primary school. She wasn't shy, Jane recalled. One dinner time, she just came up and started speaking to me. After that, we became best mates. She was a really good laugh, Mary Ann, popular, confident and pretty. We went to different secondary schools, but we stayed mates, typical teenagers. Sometimes we even bunked off school together. Mary Ann was an average 16-year-old, naive and trusting. But Mary Ann at this time was beginning to think about her future life and she decided that after school, she would like to train as a hairdresser. On the evening of Friday the 6th of November 2012, Jane and Mary Ann were, as normal, hanging out with their friend, 23-year-old Shazia Ishak, in Shazia's Renault Clio, in the car park of the disused Wallingford Arms pub, which was close to Mary Ann's home, just a couple of minutes. The pub had been derelict for a while, but the friends, known as the Lambrini girls, felt safe there. As they laid in the car and sipped on their cherry Lambrini, they chatted and gossiped about people and events, as you do. Mary Ann and Jane were sitting in the front, with Shazia, who was pregnant, lying across the back seat, when Jane saw a man approaching the car. When Jane saw two men approaching the car, Mary Ann recognised one of them and said, Oh shit, it's Reds. When Shazia asked who he was, she replied, It's someone we know. Reds approached the car and placed his hands on the windscreen peering in, before saying, Rare, look, it's Mary Ann. He then tried to open the window of the car, which was already partially opened as the two friends had been smoking cigarettes, saying, I want to talk to you, before adding, just the two girls we are looking for. Shazia said to the man, What? I'm sleeping. I haven't done anything. The girls then clocked the other man, who Mary Ann and Jane recognised as Joshua Morley. But suddenly, another four men had surrounded the car, one had opened the door, and was trying to pull Jane out of the car. Shazia was hysterical at this time, sensing that something really bad was happening, and kept shouting, don't touch me, I'm pregnant. The situation escalated quickly, as Joshua Morley punched Jane in the head, and then dragged her out of the car whilst continuing to hit her. Mary Ann was receiving similar treatment, and both of the terrified girls were bundled into the boot of the car, leaving Shazia behind, screaming. One of the gangs said to Shazia, I'm not going to hurt you, sweetheart. Just give me your car keys. But she'd been sitting on the keys, 
and after the man tried and failed to find them, he eventually left her alone, telling her, just make sure you don't go anywhere. As soon as he had left the car and walked away towards his car, where Jane and Marianne had been taken, he stopped and said again, make sure you don't go anywhere. As the gang sped away with the two girls in the boot, Jane kept saying, oh my God, but Marianne was silent, clearly scared and shocked at what had just happened. The car was speeding along and the girls could hear the normality of talking and laughing and loud rap music. But then they heard one of the men say chillingly, we'll torture them, we'll burn them with boiling water and sugar. Jane felt that this wasn't reality. It was as if she was watching what was happening in a film. But unfortunately, soon the car came to a stop and reality hit her very quickly. The drive had taken just a few minutes and they'd been taken to the Abbey House Hotel. As the boot was unlocked, they saw a man in a bandana holding a knife. He told them very calmly, you're both going to die. The gangman handled the pair into room 19 of the hotel and the room had already been prepared with sheets and towels on the floor and guns and knives on the bed. And then the violence started with the men shouting aggressively and hitting them. Mary Ann was taken to the bathroom where the men went in one by one to rape and abuse her. Jane could hear her cries of terror and pain and when she finally emerged from the bathroom in floods of tears the two girls couldn't even speak to each other as they were so frightened. Another of the gang then forced Jane to her knees, using the knife to cut her buttocks, drawing blood, saying he was going to cut her everywhere, even her private parts. It was then Jane's turn to be sexually assaulted and raped by members of the gang. Jane and Mary Ann were forced to smoke heroin and crack cocaine as the gang laughed and joked to each other. Jane later spoke to a magazine about what happened in that room, saying, The taste was disgusting. It was dirty, vile. It smelt so strong and had a really sweet aroma that filled the room. Are you flying? One of them joked. Like I should be enjoying it. I couldn't have felt worse. They were determined to humiliate us and cause us as much pain as possible. They stripped us, burned us with cigarettes and scalded us with boiling sugar water, just like they said they would. I was then forced to do something degrading to Mary Ann. I can't even bear to talk about it, it was just so humiliating. Then they forced us to shower together. They wanted to wash the blood, sweat and semen from our bodies. The men discussed what they were going to do with Jane and Mary Ann, and they spoke about taking the girls to nearby Prospect Park in Reading. I knew Prospect Park. Me and Mary Ann had been there loads of times, Jane said. It was somewhere we went to have a laugh. We'd been planning to go to the Reading Carnival there. I didn't know what it was they were going to do, but I assumed that they were going to kill us. I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. I remember thinking, what have I done with my life? And I pictured all the things I'd never see again. My mum, my house and my cat. Mary Ann was crying and crying. What's going to happen to us now, she asked me. I didn't answer. The girls were forced out of the hotel and into the boot of the car, and the car roared off towards Prospect Park. When they arrived, 
The gang demanded that the girls kneel on the grass and they put pillowcases over their heads. Left alone, Jane peeped from the pillowcase to see the terrible sight of Marianne being stabbed by one of the gang. He was stabbing her so hard that she could see he was out of breath with his exertions. Jane later said, It was disgusting. Blood splattered everywhere as he slashed her everywhere he could. Her throat, her breasts. She was struggling and cowering, but that just seemed to make him more angry. Please don't kill me, she begged. Then as he stabbed her breast, she said, Please not there. She kept begging for mercy, but it was in vain. She curled herself into a ball. But the more she screamed and pleaded, the more frenzied the attack became. One of the gang turned to me and said, Are you ready to die? These are going to be your last moments, seeing your friend butchered. One of them said, We're ready to go. Let's leave these bitches. Come on, just shoot her. Someone put the gun to my forehead. The cold, hard metal pressed against my skull. I looked down, closing my eyes. Then I heard an alarm sound in my head. I thought my head was going to explode with the ringing. It was so loud. But it was just in my head. I fell to the ground and everything went black. I remember thinking to myself, how long does it take to die? The next thing I felt was wet grass and insects on my face and Marianne's breathing. Something was dripping on me, her blood. I must have laid there for about 20 minutes, too scared to move in case the boys were still there. I thought they were all standing over me, watching me, but of course they were all in too much of a hurry to get away to check for my pulse. I opened my eyes and realised that she was lying across my leg. I slid my body out from under her then dragged myself up. The pain from my stabbed leg was horrible. I felt so scared, but I could see my friend was in excruciating pain. She was still conscious, but her breathing had become heavier. She couldn't speak. It was as though she knew I was still there. I whispered that I'd go and get help. I told her she'd be okay, and then I left her. Every time I saw a car, I jumped out of my skin. The man, Desmond Goddard, after I caught his attention, tried to calm me down. Sit down, he said. I did, but then I started to fall asleep and that really scared him. Come on, love, he said. Wake up. But everywhere hurt. The pain in my head was unbelievable and I felt like my skull was about to explode. Jane was rushed to hospital where her mum wrote to her the terrible news that Mary Ann had died from her injuries. By the time the police had got to Mary Ann, she'd been dead for just 15 minutes. When she died, poor Mary Ann was just 16 years old. As news spread about what had happened, people were understandably horrified and incredibly angry. The police were under pressure to make rapid progress, and the man tasked with leading the hunt for the gang was Superintendent Dilip Amin, aerial commander for Reading. He said in a press conference, One of the girls is very ill from the injuries she has received, but she's been very brave in helping police, and she has managed to share information with officers. Superintendent Amin said, Information we have suggests this is not a random attack. We are keeping all our options open. Behind the scenes, the investigation was already moving quickly. Detectives had an advantage in the search for a gang, as Jane hadn't been killed as intended. Although dazed and confused, 
she was still able to take police to the hotel where she and Marianne had been taken themselves. Electronic evidence from the keycard system took them to room 19, where there was a large amount of forensic evidence from both of the women. Staff at the hotel pointed detectives in the direction of a man called Michael Brown, who had hired the room a couple of times recently, and also the previous month. Detectives were quickly able to discover this wasn't his real name, as Reading Police had themselves come across a Michael Brown the previous month. He'd been stopped driving an untaxed car, but when taken to the police station, admitted his true identity, Adrian Thomas. Police raced to his address in South London, but they'd just missed him as he'd left the capital for Birmingham. But the net was closing in on the gang, and at the home suspect Joshua Morley shared with his brother Jamail, police recovered bloodstained clothing and bedding from the hotel, containing the DNA of Jane and Mary Ann, which they had taken from the hotel after the attack. As the pressure grew, two others from the gang called their social workers, hinting at their involvement in the crime. From the outset of the investigation, forensics teams had found key items of evidence, but as well as letting Jane live, the gang made other immediate errors making them traceable, such as breaking the speed limit as they drove away from Reading on the day of the murder. This gang, despite their childish wannabe gangster status we hear so much about on this podcast, were very strictly amateurs. A speed camera approaching London captured full details of their vehicle, and this car was also traced on another camera near the Abbey House Hotel. The Morley brothers and another gang member, Michael Johnson, knew that it was a matter of time before they were caught and surrendered to police, and other members of the gang were all in custody within nine days. Nine days is pretty impressive. We talk a lot about poor police work on this podcast, but this was excellent work to get these animals quickly off the streets. And what was the motive for this attack? Detectives believe that the likely motive was that one of the gang, Reds, blamed Marianne for a robbery at his flat in April. On the night of 18th or 19th of April, Reds was attacked, stabbed and robbed of his drugs at the flat in Reading's Oxford Road, which he'd been renting for a short time. Thomas believed that it was Marianne and or Jane who had set him up for that robbery. This explains the reaction of the two girls when they first saw Reds when they were in the car outside the derelict pub. Marianne's aunt Jennifer told police that her niece had been repeatedly advised by her family not to associate with her older friend Jane, who was believed to be hanging around with drug dealers. She said that in the weeks before her murder, Marianne told her about her friend setting up Reds to be robbed in his flat in Oxford Road, Reading. Marianne said that when this boy found out, there would be trouble because of it. In an interview with police, Jennifer also said that Marianne had told her that she was in fear of being fitted up because of what her older friend had done. But whatever the girls were suspected of doing, the response from this cowardly gang was clearly way out of proportion. The reality is that a gang of six males carried out this attack of pure horror on two teenage girls. So who were the low-life members of this gang who were able to behave in this way? Michael Johnson was one. In 2001, when 13, he was sent to a young offender institution for three and a half years, 
after being involved in a nasty attack on a 13-year-old boy suffering from learning difficulties. With two slightly older friends, notice again, acting with others, not on his own. He saw the victim on a train at Wandsworth Station in south-west London. The trio forced the boy off the train and took him to a disused car park where they tied him upside down with a rope and then the attack occurred, only stopping when the boy was unconscious with a fractured skull. During the attack, Johnson put the boot in with some force to the victim's face. The three cowards made their escape, but one of the group, not involved in the attack, luckily had an ounce of human decency and rang 999. It was fortunate he did, as when paramedics arrived they found this boy with life-threatening injuries, including a cerebral hemorrhage. As well as this, Johnson had other convictions for as well as this, Johnson had other convictions for assaulting a fellow care home resident and two minicab drivers, a fray, and possessing an offensive weapon. And just a week before the murder, he received a community service order for assaulting a policeman and possessing cannabis. In 2003, the gang leader Reds, or Adrian Thomas as I like to call him, the self-styled Director of Operations, God, what a muppet, was given a youth court referral order for possessing cannabis. He'd also received non-custodial sentences for drug offences and possessing a bladed article, and was under an order for this at the time the crime took place. Brothers Jamie and Jamal Morley also had records. In October 2004, 22-year-old Jamal was given a community rehabilitation order at Blackfriars Crown Court for handling stolen goods, replacing an earlier community punishment which Morley had breached. His criminal past included convictions for possessing an offensive weapon, failing to surrender, obtaining property by deception and possessing cannabis, for all of which he received non-custodial punishments. Jamal's brother Joshua, 23, had convictions dating back to 1999 for robbery, shoplifting, criminal damage and taking a vehicle without consent. 18-year-old Indrit Krasnicki received a referral order in June 2004 for two common assaults. A Kosovo national who had come to Britain illegally as a child and was raised in children's homes. He'd also been given community service for obstructing a policeman and driving without insurance or a licence. He was warned in August 2003 for possessing cannabis. And finally, there was 24-year-old Llewellyn Adams, a university student who was the only one of the six murderers with no previous criminal record. It was his car which was used to abduct the two women. At their trial, all denied the murder of Marianne and the attempted murder of Jane. They further denied kidnapping, grievous bodily harm and rape. We've heard about a lot of losers on this podcast, I'm afraid, who still believe in their fantasy world of gangs and power and are unable to realise just what they've done. Adrian Thomas Reds fits this mould, unfortunately. One of the most distressing parts of the trial was the arrogance and complete lack of remorse shown by the gang leader. For every single day of his two-month trial, he swaggered into the court in his ill-fitting suit with an air of real confidence. Before taking his seat in the dock, he always tried to make a point of staring down at his victim's loved ones in the adjacent public gallery, trying to meet their eyes. 
I mean, really? The families of the two girls held their heads in their hands and wept as the gruesome events of the nights of May the 7th were recounted by Richard Latham, QC, prosecuting to a distressed jury. Latham QC said that not all of the gang members took part in everything that went on in that room and not all were present when the girls were taken to the park. But they acted together in a joint enterprise to torture and kill these young women. All of the gang were found guilty of murder and were also convicted of other charges, including kidnap and assault, and some were convicted of rape. Thomas, together with Michael Johnson and brothers Jamail and Joshua Morley, were told they would each serve a minimum of 27 years. The women Adams and Indrit Krasniki were told they must serve at least 23 years. The judge, Justice Henry Davy, told the six, Drugs breed violence. Those who deal in drugs show a readiness to use weapons, including guns. He said the gang treated their victims as bait and subjected them to acts of gratuitous torture and gross sexual abuse. The judge addressed each defendant in turn. You, Thomas, dealt in drugs and suffered violence as a result. You decided to repay violence with violence and collected a gang together to avenge the attack on you. You, Adams, provided the essential transport for the operation at all stages. You, Jamail Morley, and you, Joshua Morley, enthusiastically joined up as enforcers and enlisted the further support of you, Johnson, and you, Krasniki. Your gang of six was armed from the outset with guns, knives and some form of blunt instrument. You were equipped and prepared for serious violence and you set out and kidnapped as bait those two young women. Even if you, Thomas, believed that either of them was in some way involved in the earlier attack on you, what happened that night had not the remotest justification. Those who use or are a party to the use of guns, more particularly when intending to kill, will pay a high price when brought to book. And he turned to the ordeal of the families of both girls, and in particular those of Mary Ann. Nothing I can say can touch upon the terrible loss that they have suffered, he said. They've been present throughout this trial, and I've seen and watched, and I'd like to simply express my praise for the dignity and restraint they've shown in the light of this appalling tragedy throughout the trial. Mary Ann's mum, Sue Harris, left the court to about 30 family and friends making no comment. Charlie Harris, the murdered girl's uncle, described the sentence as brilliant, adding, justice has been done. The family also spoke of their pain in a short statement, saying, Mary Ann was a wonderful girl who was greatly loved by her friends and family. She'll be sorely missed. The verdicts today have come nearly a year after she was taken from us. We are now left with the task of trying to piece our lives back together. Jane refused to have a screen when she gave evidence at the trial because she wanted to see the defendants. I refused to let them think I was a frightened little victim. I glared at each of them in turn and felt an enormous rush of anger as they stared back at me, Jane said. If I hadn't survived, those men might never have got what they deserved. And Jane is now trying to rebuild her life. She has only one visible scar, a dimple on her forehead. The knife marks on her wrists and body have faded and the stab wounds on her thighs have disappeared. But the mental scars, of course, will never vanish. 
I have flashbacks, panic attacks and nightmares, Jane said. But I won't let this beat me. I'll make the most of this second chance I've been given for Mary Ann. I believe that one of us had to live to tell the story. I know nothing will ever bring her back, but at least justice has been done. On this podcast, whenever possible, I try to look at the wider effect of these horrendous crimes. In particular, the effect on the families of those who commit such terrible acts. In this case, the mum of the Morley brothers, Veveth Morley, spoke about how the actions of her sons had invoked in her a strong desire to die of shame. Joshua Morley was involved in most of the sexual abuse of the two girls, and Mary Ann's friend recalled him hitting her with a metal pole. The court was heard it was Joshua who made his living as a crack dealer, who told the girls, you're going to die, I hope you know that. And Jamal was involved in almost all the sickening aspects of the girls' ordeal, and at one point in the hotel room, stuck a gun in Mary Ann's mouth. Their mum, Veveth Morley, suffered the first in a series of strokes and fits when her two sons were convicted in April 2006. She wouldn't visit her sons in jail, but she would be on the phone crying to them, why did you do this? Then in August 2007, a broken woman, the 51-year-old mum of three, died at home after an epileptic fit. She'd always said that her own death would be some form of justice for what her children had done, adding, if I go, maybe it will repay the parents for losing their child. In February 2011, Indrit Krasniki was again on the front pages, where along with two other Muslims in the prison, he killed a Bosnian war criminal. Krasniki and the two other prisoners went into the man's cell in West Yorkshire and cut him with blades, leaving serious wounds to his face and neck. During the trial, Julian Goose QC said the slashing was a planned and determined attack in which the three defendants intended to kill the man. He said, This was a crime of exceptional gravity. You planned an attack upon a defenceless man with an artificial leg. You planned a revenge attack by way of retribution for war crimes he carried out in the 1990s. All three of you are practicing Muslims. I've no doubt what you intended was an act of revenge for those war crimes. So there you have it. What do you make of what we've heard today? Of course, it's an appalling story. And the reality, the sounds, the smell, the noises of what happened in the hotel room and Prospect Park is literally the stuff of our worst nightmares. Where Mary Ann died became a place of horror, and yet it's a place where she'd also enjoyed some great times. We can just hope that all those people affected by the story have been able to move on with their lives in some way. Well, that is except the six members of the gang, who now languish in jail. More than probably any other podcast I recall, it isn't possible to have any sympathy for them at all. Is it? I wonder, as they are in their cells, as you listen right now, whether they see themselves still as the big men, or whether they've gained any self-awareness. We can give a million possible reasons for their actions, from lack of father figures, to being let down by the education system. But, wow, to behave in this way, whatever the reasons, it's just impossible to comprehend. It just needed one, one of the gang to stop the attack escalating. But none appeared able to do this. And I wonder how they are treated in jail. I imagine it won't be the easiest sentence 
when you were in a gang of six men who attacked two teenage girls, killing one of them. Let's hope so. Thank you for listening to this slightly longer episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. Please come and talk about this case or any other aspect of UK True Crime on our Facebook group. You'll be made most welcome. And to support the show and access 24 full-length bonus episodes and other exclusive content, please go to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime, where for less than the price of that dodgy pint of lager you had the other night, you can keep the show going weekly. So that is all for me for now. So until we speak again next week, take it easy and remember, stay classy.